Thank you, team. That's a new song we're going to get acquainted with as we move into Easter here, because that's a, that's a resurrection song, right? Thank the Lord. I want to express my appreciation to Jesse and to Andrew and to Bob. and Sandy and I were away for a couple of weeks here getting both some physical and spiritual refreshment. Um, we had the privilege of visiting our son uh, in the military, and then uh, we had a few days of Church Awakenings uh, Revive Conference, and it did just what it promised. It, it revived our souls and uh, refocused our vision, and I'm very grateful for the work of Alec Rowland with uh, Westgate Chapel and, and Church Awakening, and uh, hopefully you will be the beneficiaries of a renewed pastor. That always is needed, right? Kind of hard to have fire in the in the pew if there's not fire in the pulpit. And uh, so uh, I got a call, I got a, a message this morning uh, about 7 o'clock from a gentleman who doesn't even go to Mosaic here. He's an attorney in town, but he texted me and he, he said, I'm, I'm praying as your people are that that the Spirit of God will move today. I wrote him back, I said, that means more to me than you know. And I said, uh, I'm praying that, I just finished praying that for our whole city. And he wrote back and he said, you know, I, uh, a lot of my friends were putting their hope in politics this year. And uh, he said, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. And I said, you know, I wrote back, I said, I think the Lord is, is weaning all of us from false gods. And, uh, and I said, the next one may be the economy. And he said, uh, he, he wrote back again, he said, I have a friend who just told me he made over $500,000 in the stock market recently. And so I sent him a, a link to a project in Africa that needs help. And I didn't hear anything back. And he said, uh, the next thing he told me was he's, he's not going to engage in giving until he's amassed $30 million. And uh, I thought, you know, we all got a different level, don't we? Maybe it's $30 million for that man. Maybe, maybe it's 300 in the bank for us. The question is, who are we looking to to save this country? What are we looking to? What are we looking to to fill our soul? It's got to be Jesus, or we will be disappointed. Well, I'm going to go back just a half chapter today from last Sunday's sermon, which Jesse did a fabulous job, and and uh, uh, I want to fill in a section that we we skipped over. Uh, it's really a great way to build a foundation for the very thing that Jesse was talking about last week and Paul addresses in chapter 12 when he says, due to the mercies of God, this is, this is how we should live. This is what should happen to us. And if the mercy of God and the grace of God doesn't grip our soul, we won't live this way. And, and the first 11 chapters are all about the mercy and the grace of God. And as, as confusing as some of those chapters are, um, Unless the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God and the judgment of God uh, grips our soul, we're not going to have the motivation day by day to be living sacrifices. We're going to crawl off that altar. We're going to make ourselves God. But if we are totally immersed in the mercy and the goodness of God, we're going to want to stay on that altar when the fire gets painful uh, because... We love the one who redeemed us, and because of all that he is pouring out on us. So in today's section, we're, we're going to be wrapping up Paul's focus on the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles to God's historic arc of salvation. And he, remember, he's been grieving for like three chapters here, the failure of his own people, the Jews, to embrace Jesus, the Messiah. He, he's been telling the Gentile believers like us that while Jews are currently experiencing a, a hardening of heart because of their persistence in unbelief, God's taken that as an opportunity to reach out to you and me. 
Gentiles. And we, the Gentile believers, will be used by God someday to reverse the course here so that the Jews get jealous for God. Three weeks ago, we saw how God wants to use good jealousy, right? God wants to use, whenever we see something of his nature in the lives of other people or in the life of the church, he wants to use that to say, I want more of that. Not enough for me yet. That's good jealousy. That's the kind of thing that, that moves us. It's always good jealousy when we see the spiritual zeal or passion or fire of someone else and our heart says, I need that. I want that. Ungodly jealousy wants the wrong things and the wrong stuff out of life. Godly jealousy is a God-given yearning for the right things. So when I see spiritual sensitivity that I'm not experiencing, like I saw last week at Church Awakening, in the lives of other brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God moves in me and says, John, don't settle for less. When I see spiritual zeal and hunger and faith of heart and love of the saints and love of lost people, anything of the life of Christ in any of you, God wants me to be jealous for that. And when I read about revival, which I've done for 35 years of my life now, when I see firsthand some of those stories all around the world, or I just bump into a, a slight move of God, my heart says, I'm jealous for that. And that's a godly jealousy. So God's going to do that someday with an entire race of people called the Jews. He tells us that in this chapter. So we're going to pick it up in, in chapter 11, verse 13. Paul writes, he says, I'm talking to you Gentiles, you non-Jews, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, the Jews, to good jealousy, to envy, and save some of them. For if their rejection, their rejection as a nation of the, of the Messiah, brought reconciliation, brought the gospel to, to us Gentiles, to the world, what will their acceptance be as a nation, but life from the dead? And we talked briefly about that last time. We talked about what's that millennial kingdom going to look like? The lion's going to lie down with the lamb. The dead are going to rise. Uh, you're going to see war cease. You're going to see Satan bound in ways he's not been bound yet. That's what's going to happen when the chosen people, the Jews, accept the Messiah. And he returns. And he says, yes, now I will set up my kingdom. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. He goes on in verse 16. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. In other words, he's saying if the saving on Gentiles is a holy thing, certainly the eventual inclusion of the Jews is going to be an amazing thing. And then he says if the root is, he switches the metaphor here, if the root is holy, so are the branches. I first got acquainted with grafting when I was a child. Um, my parents purchased a piece of property out on Coeur Lake, and that whole area of the lake used to be orchard. In the, back in the 20s and 30s, they attempted to turn it into what Wenatchee has become. They, attempted to, they, they planted thousands of apple trees all through that area. And uh, we had a neighbor who'd homesteaded there, and... Uh, uh, he told us about it, and anyway, when we got this property, there were dozens of then old apple trees on this property. There were dozens of wild apple trees that had been sown from the seeds of those apple trees. And, uh, and, and so I, I got to learn what the difference was between a wild apple tree and a, and a, and a, uh, a domesticated or grafted apple tree. By the way, we're, we're on the border here uh, in the climate, and so that's why it really didn't take hold. But uh, 
our neighbor friend told us he was returning on the boat from Coeur d'Alene one day, about 12 miles down the lake was where we are, and uh, he said he, as he rounded the bend, it smelled like baked apples. And the reason was the barge loaded with the crop for that year had caught fire. And that was the end of the apple business in Coeur d'Alene. Okay. Um, but I got acquainted with what's the difference between a, a domesticated apple tree and a wild one? Uh, that's that's kind of what apples look like on a wild one. They're small, they're tart, they're mealy, they're they're awful. But on a domesticated tree where you have grafted to a root, perhaps a wild root, you've grafted a, a domesticated apple. It's amazing. I mean, we're still enjoying in our family varieties I can't find in the store because somebody chose to graft a few trees now almost 100 years ago in this area of the country. When it comes to apples, you usually graft the wild root to a domesticated uh, stump or, or fruit part. But Paul flips that metaphor here. And he talks about gra God grafting people into the life, his life, the life of God. He, he's the true life and the true sap. And he says, you know, you as Gentiles, you're the wild ones. You're, you're the undomesticated. And God is in the business of grafting you into an entirely new life source. So the root here that he's talking about, uh, it's being really rooted in Christ. He's saying, since God broke off the Jews who refused to believe from the root of connection with, with them, with God, and he grafted you in, it's not going to take any work on his part at all to reverse that process and take the domesticated, broken-off branch and graft it back in to Christ someday. Um, speaking of rooted, because he uses that term here, uh, we'll talk more about this later, but uh, we're gonna, our, our next series of leadership training is going to be in a book called Rooted. And it's, a, it's about a 10-week uh, course that, that requires whoever participates to engage in some daily spiritual disciplines. And, and this is a step up. And so the first Sunday, we're just going to introduce you to it, not in the service, but if you're interested in saying, I need to, I'm, I'm spiritually jealous, I want some more, then we'll tell you, okay, here's the next 10 weeks that, that we're going to take a journey together and we'll give you that information, uh, uh, and we'll start advertising that next week. But this past week, I did a funeral for, as I mentioned last Sunday, one of our senior saints. And uh, Evie was 92. Um, and as I sat down with her family members to prepare for the funeral, I discovered that I had grown up three blocks away from them as a child. And there was an automatic kind of like, oh, wait, we know the same people. We started talking about neighbors. We started talking about things. After the funeral, they, they gave me this vase here with flowers. And as you can see, some of it is wilting already. <clears throat> That's what happens when you cut off anything from its root. And this is exactly what happens to every human being. This is what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned. You shall surely die, and they said, well, maybe. And spiritually, they began to die. They died immediately, and they had to be reborn again by faith. And physically, they began to wilt. And eventually, they were sown back in the ground. And this is precisely the kind of image that God's talking about. He says, when, whenever a human being says no to God, we're choosing death every time. And whenever we say yes to him, we're choosing to be grafted into the life of Christ, which is the life we're going to enjoy for all of eternity. 
So Paul launches into this illustration of what God is doing in grafting us Gentiles in and what he's doing with the Jews in the meantime in verse 17 here. If some of the branches have been broken off, the Jews, most of the Jews, he, notice not all of the Jews because he's one of those that didn't get broken off by unbelief. If some have been broken off and you, though a wild shoot, you Gentiles, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, he's drawing on the olive rather than the apple tree here. He says, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. What a beautiful picture here. We've been grafted into the life of Christ, a bunch of wild Gentiles. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we got included in this amazing tree of God's chosen people. We became a branch on the same tree as Adam and Eve, Abel, Noah, Methuselah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Josiah, Mary, Paul. Keep going. We're in the same, we're in the same tree. We're in the same amazing family. And just as they drew spiritual sap in their generation for their connection with God, so we have that possibility. The same life of God that moved Elijah to confront 850 prophets of Baal can move you to face any person in this world. It's the same sap. It's the same image Jesus uses in John 15, isn't it? When he's telling us, you got to abide in the vine, folks. And I am the vine, he says. And that's why we come back together every single Sunday. Because we're here today because we're hungry for the sap of God. All the spiritual disciplines are given to us to enable us to get grafted deeper into that vine. Crying out to God in times of need, listening to godly counsel, seeking time with God daily, living in humble spiritual submission to godly saints, that's all part of drawing on the sap of God. And we didn't get to be connected to God because we were such a great catch. We, the wild shoots that would have been utterly barren and dead unless God grabbed us and stuffed us into the trunk, that should humble every one of us. Why should I be one of the ones? It's like somebody who escapes a car accident and everybody else in the car is killed and you say, why me? Why didn't I die? That reality should produce humility of heart, says God. Not a sense of superiority or spiritual snobbery. Verse 18, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. Which branches? The ones that aren't where they should be. The people around us who are lost. Thursday's Bible study, we're going back through Romans, and I'm so glad we are. When we started this, I thought, you guys really want to go through Romans again? Yeah, we do. And we're in chapter 2 and it's, it, it, this week, and it was just talking about this tendency of every one of us to judge to be judgmental of everyone around us. And God says, how dare you? Because you know you're not living up to the standard. And this is what God says. He's, you know, there's a, in, that, in chapter 2, he points, he, he says, God's judgment points people to him. Our judgment just makes them feel bad, makes us look ugly. But God's judgment points them to him. That's the important thing. And Paul tells us that when we adopt a mindset that considers ourselves in some way superior to the broken off branches around us, particularly the Jews, does this tell you the spiritual root of anti-Semitism? He says, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. There it is, right there. The only reason anybody is separated from God is because of unbelief. 
the sin of unbelief. And he says, and you stand by faith, but do not be arrogant, rather tremble. And here's the spiritual reality. Unbelief of God always breaks relationship with him, whereas simple faith in him will always create more relationship. It will always draw upon the presence and the sap of God. Perhaps we're not used to thinking about God as, as warning us about our standing in him. I mean, we as Protestants of the Reformation, you know, we talk a lot about the, the, the perseverance of the saints. We talk about uh, eternal security, at least in our branch of Christendom. But here God is saying something to, pe to people. He's saying, hey, don't take that for granted. Don't believe that you got this all nailed down. Genuine faith will always persevere, and genuine faith <clears throat> will always pursue a line of humility. But, as James says, dead faith just makes you say what the demons say. Oh, I believe in God. Great, so do they, but they at least tremble, says James. So, what he's saying is you're is to the person who says, you know, all I have to do is a minimal amount of religious activity to, that convinces me that I'm okay. That's the kind of faith that led the Jews to reject Jesus. And genuine faith instead recognizes the difference. It recognizes that I can pervert, I can pervert real faith into and, and start just coasting, just going on my past religious experience, and to those in the church thinking that, Paul writes in verse 21, he says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jews, he will not spare you either. Who is he talking about? He's talking about those who don't engage in genuine faith and utter dependence on God. Verse 22, Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Here's a verse we talked about at communion. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Now, don't confuse this. He's not talking, hey, if you stumble and you sin this afternoon, you're out. No, it's not that kind of falling. What he's talking about is, is an absolute rejection here. This, this is a term uh, that is, is used uh, very few times in Scripture. It, it, it's a, it's, this cutting off here is in response to people who persistently say, no, to the revelation of God. What happened? Through centuries, the, the Jewish people got in their head, Jesus or the Messiah is going to be a certain kind of guy, and he's going to do a certain kind of work and a certain kind of ministry. Hmm, sounds like the church today, doesn't it? Be very careful when you think you've got all that God, God figured out, because he's just about to surprise you with, with doing things the way you may not be comfortable with. The Jews were not comfortable with Jesus. And so they rejected him. And I have to think that when God brings revival to our nation, which I believe he will, regardless of what happens to this nation, that it will come in ways that many of the people of God will say, I don't want that. I'm not interested in that. Why? Because they're not living the kind of life that says, you, can do, you are Lord of my life. You can do anything you want to do. And you can do it in any way you choose. I'm the sacrifice on the altar. You're the fire. So what do we learn about God here? Two qualities. His kindness, we've talked a lot about that. And his sternness. Let me think for a moment just about this issue of sternness, which we're not, we don't give a lot of attention to usually. This has the idea, this, this term sternness has the idea of to cut something off sharply. This word, this particular word, is only found here in the New Testament. It's a unique word. It's used of exacting the full provision of the law. It, we would say in, in common terminology, it's throwing the book at somebody. Okay? So consider when God throws the book at somebody. To the Jews who thought righteousness and acceptability before God would come by law-keeping, God says, okay, so you love the law more than you love mercy and grace. More than you love faith. Then you will have to suffer the penalty of the law, which is condemnation 
and being cut off from me. This is why human religion is so deadly. It always thinks it can accomplish what only God can do. I can do that. I'm good enough. And God says, no. Only my son was good enough to do it for you. Let me try to make an imperfect illustration here. Um, just to bring it really close to home. I don't know if you realize, but Washington State is home to two of the richest, actually ten of the richest people in the world. But two of the top three richest in the world live in Bellevue, our state. That tells you why our state wants an income tax for one reason, huh? Okay? But Bill Gates and, and, and Jeff Bezos are two of the richest guys in the world. Combined, their wealth is over $300 billion. You know how many kids they have between the two of them? Nope, they have seven. Uh, Gates has three. Bezos has four. Now, if you do the math, and their kids spend a million dollars a day, they're never going to outspend $300 billion that keeps growing, right? So they are unbelievably rich. I'm not opposed to that at all. Okay, don't get me wrong here. This is the illustration, however. Imagine this happens to children of rich people sometimes. Uh, their children get a little uppity. And families get sideways. And... Uh, Let's imagine that their kids just want it their way, not their parents' way. Now, of course, their parents are imperfect, so here's where my illustration breaks down. But let's imagine that, that they just turn their back on it, and, and they, you know, they, they just hate their parents. And let's imagine that both the Gates and the Bezos still want to leave a heritage. And they want children who will carry on their vision of life. And so instead of leaving $300 billion to seven kids, they decide, well, okay, let's open it up to anybody who wants it. And seven million people respond. Who's the winner now? Well, those seven million, right? And this is kind of, in a very poor way, what Paul is saying. He's saying that the Jews were the seven kids, and they didn't realize what they had. And they said no to their parent, God. And so God said, well, okay, I'll open it up. And isn't that what Jesus' parable of the wedding feast says? Okay, they didn't want it. Let's go into the highways and the byways and let's find all the lame and the blind and the poor and let, let's go for them. That's us, folks. Don't get flattered about who you are. That's us. Now, this is a bit of a crazy illustration, but it's a metaphor of God's riches. I mean, 300 billion is, is really a sneeze for God. When you think he owns the universe, and I mean, astronomers tell us that there are whole planets that are, that have whole sections of the planet that are diamond. Whole areas of their crust are just made of diamond. I mean, and God just kind of laughs at 300 billion. But, but I'm talking really about his nature, not, not, not physical stuff. God has an endless supply of sacrificial love for people of heart throbbing compassion of gentle mercy of abounding grace of overflowing kindness of, of stunning beauty of overwhelming peace of everything good right just and holy that our hearts long for and all the wealth of the universe to boot and God offers that to us he offers it to the world because he offers himself. So God came after us, a bunch of wild shoots, and like that parable in Matthew 22, 
He found the, the, the blind and the lame and the halt and the, he found us. And he invited us to the banquet. And now we get to invite others. Well, Paul continues here in verse 23 says, and if, if they don't persist, the Jews, if they don't persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. How willing God is to restore anybody who does not persist in unbelief. And I just challenge you today, if you're sitting here and you know you're persisting in unbelief against God, I would just say stop. That is a very dangerous place to be. Because the day will come when, when you'll just be hardened so much you won't want to hear the voice of God. Paul says in verse 24, after all, if, if you were cut out of an olive tree that's wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches of Israel, the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? What's Paul talking about here? Ten times in chapters 9 to 11, Paul has used the term Israel. And every time, I think, if you, if you go study it out, every time it's pretty clear he's using it in the ethnic sense. So here, when he uses it the last time, I find it difficult to say, well, no, he's really talking about the church. Um, no, I think he's talking about Jewish people as distinct from Gentiles. He's not mixing these two groups. And you may be thinking, well, big deal. What difference does it matter whether Israel and the Jews are distinct from the church? Well, I think it matters to what God's going to bless this earth with. And in verse 25, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, now he's not talking every individual, he's saying the, the Jewish race, the Jewish nation, the majority of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, He's talking about Christ. He will turn godliness, uh, godlessness away from Jacob, away from Israel, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Now, Christ did that in the first place on the cross, right? He took away the sin of the world. But this, there's also, I think, a prophetic sense here in which God's saying, at some point in the future, I will do a work in Israel, and it will finally make them a holy people. And it will take away their sin. And by the way, he's referring to Isaiah chapter 59 and Jeremiah 31 and Isaiah 27 here. The mystery he is talking about here is the mystery of God's certain truth. That their failure would mean blessing for you and me. That most of their nation would reject Jesus was a mystery to the Jews. That they would really reject their Messiah, right? The millions upon millions of Gentiles would benefit from their rejection was a mystery. And that God had a massively bigger plan for mankind than a little Jewish nation was a mystery. But Paul tells us there's a clock ticking on this mystery. It's not marked by the minutes on a hand, but it is marked by the souls of Gentiles, and you're one of them. I'm one of them. He says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full, measure, full number of the Gentiles has come in. You know what? If you're a follower of Christ as a non-Jew, you are one of those numbers. And apparently the number's not full yet. But a day's coming when one of us is going to share Christ with somebody. And they're going to bow their knee to the Lord and their heart to Christ. And the number's going to be full. And then God's going to flip a switch and something new is going to happen with Israel. Something is going to bring a level of, of blessing to this world unparalleled, absolutely unparalleled to anything that we, we have seen. I would just, th this gets into the area of what we call eschatology or, or end time events. Um, and, and there is difference of opinion about this. But I'll tell you, this, these three chapters, add them to Revelation chapter 20, uh, leads me to be what is called a premillennialist. In other words, 
I believe that God will literally set up a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Go, how else do you read? the? There's a future for Israel as a nation that is not fulfilled in the church. It just isn't. And so here you have kind of the four viewpoints, uh, or three basic ones. The blue one at the top and the blue one at the bottom are basically the same. They're just uh, developed a little differently as in terms of when you think uh, the bottom one is a pre-tribulational, in other words, thinking that Christ will return prior to the tribulation for his church and rapture the church up, whereas uh, uh, the more uh, classical or historic pre-millennial view didn't necessarily see a rapture in this whole scheme. Whether there is or isn't doesn't matter that much, honestly, in my opinion. The important point is, will is there a future for Israel as a people, and if so, how's that going to work out and when? And let's just take the bottom line there. We're in the church age on the left. Um, under that viewpoint, uh, Christ could return at the beginning of the tribulation, in the middle, or at the end. But basically, that's the arrow coming down, Jesus descending, the church being taken up. Under this position here, under this timeline, it sees it as a pre-tribulational rapture. So Christ returns before the tribulation, seven years. And then there's the tribulation, and then he comes back to earth to set up his kingdom, and there's a thousand-year reign. And then Satan is released once again to deceive the nations for a short period of time. And then you have the new heaven and the new earth. Now, in our millennial view, the red one simply says that the church is currently Israel. And so we are working out the kingdom of God on earth. I'm sorry, I, the way I see scripture, God still has a future for the nation of Israel. And this is why it is important that we treat the nation of Israel a certain way. Doesn't mean everything they do is right, okay? But, but this is one of the implications. Um, go to the next slide, would you, Dave? Okay, this is, this is more a biblical timeline of events for a pre-millennial, pre-tribulational rapture belief, okay? And these will be posted up on our website, so if you want to go look at them again, uh, you can find them on the slides there under today's message. But, but that's just a further kind of working out um, of, of what this may be. But this is, and, and go to Revelation chapter 20, if, if you are having trouble figuring this out, it's pretty clear to me in Revelation 20 that God has a future for his nation, Israel. So let's wrap this up. What are the what's the implication here? Number one, how about we, the church, learn from the failure of the Jewish nation, and we don't be satisfied with anything less than a constant spiritual renewal and revival? Because anything less than that can lead to ultimate rejection in this generation or the next, right? So let's not be content with anything but a growing passion for the kingdom of God, for spiritual renewal among us as a people. I've been, I've been praying for that for 35 years. Still haven't experienced the level I, I want. So I just keep praying. And I know many of you have as well. This passage is a clarion call to run as hard as we can from growing indifference about spiritual issues. It's a call to despise our tendency to spiritual pride. To think of ourselves somehow better than others around us. To be judgmental instead of compassionate and broken for, for broken people. Be prepared to be surprised by God. Secondly, long for that regrafting in of the Jewish people and avoid anti-Semitism. There is an ugly strain in this world today of anti-Semitism. And you may not like Jewish people for whatever reason, but let me tell you, God's got a place in his heart for them. And if you fight against them in any way, you will be fighting against God. And so, and we could, we could apply that to any race, really. Any racial issue. Um, that is that kind of arrogance that God says, nope, I'm going to fight against that. Whereas humility would say, 
you know what? I'm probably more broken than they are. So God have mercy. So we should be praying for the salvation of Jews. We should be praying for the protection of the nation of Israel. We should be seeking out relationships with Jewish people when we bump up into them. God wants to graft them back in. That's really clear from here. And whether it's the one Jew you know, or it's a whole nation, God still wants to use you to do that. Thirdly, we need to be diligent to be living lives that are deeply grafted into Christ. The only thing that will protect us from becoming just like Israel is, a, is drawing on the sap of Christ more and more and more. And, and how you do that, that's why this course called Rooted is so critical, because it's dealing with some of these spiritual practices that just give you the capacity to suck in the life of Christ in your own life. We need to be pursuing that at every corner. Whatever it takes, decide you're going to do that. You're just not going to be content to say, oh, well, I'll be kind of a shriveled up old branch there. Nope, that's not God's plan for you. Fourth, how about if we live together longing and working for the full measure of the Gentiles to come to Christ? What that means is that you literally could be the person that leads to the last Gentile to the Lord, that brings in that full number. We all have that ability to live forever grateful that we've been included in Christ, and as a result, sharing that simple invitation with other people. So I'll close with that. I don't know if you're here this morning and, and you don't know Christ, but if you don't know him, you're only one prayer away from the greatest relationship you will ever have. And that prayer simply expresses your heart's desire, but it's that you're a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. I, I've failed you. And I need the Savior, Jesus. And I recognize that he's the only one who can reconnect me with the Father. And so I put my faith in him, and I don't know how it's going to work, but I, but I ask you to fill me with your spirit and, and make me a productive branch in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anybody here today who is not grafted into Christ yet, that you would not let them rest until they simply say yes to Jesus, until by faith they stop running and just let you embrace them and fill them with your presence. And Father, we pray for this world we're in. Oh my. This world so desperately needs us, your people, to be branches that are so filled with the life of Christ that it makes them jealous for you. Lord, please do that work in every one of us who is willing. And we ask it simply for the glory and the name and the fame of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. like to invite uh, Inga or Tom, which, who's coming up? Inga, come up here, Inga. Um, as Inga's coming, just uh, some quick announcements about some things that are uh, unfolding here. We've got men's breakfast on Saturday, uh, 8 o'clock this coming Saturday, and uh, got two of our brothers, uh, Don and, and uh, Blake. They'll be speaking on how you balance faith with wisdom. Ever, ever wondered the difference between faith and folly? Because some people crash and burn claiming it's faith. And it's just folly. And well, they're going to be talking about this interaction. How do you, how do you know when it's faith and, and when it's when you need to exercise wisdom? So, that, men, that's on, that's on Saturday. And, um, and then, Inga, I want, you, um, I want you to do two things here this morning. Um, would you, some of us don't know about THS. So in like two minutes. Tell us what THS is and what it does. Okay. Um, 
we are pastors from Germany and especially church planters. So over the years in Germany, Europe, it's very hard. We figured out that people coming from the Bible school are not prepared to be a pastor. So they quit their ministry pretty fast. <laughs> so we are light on the knees and ask Jesus, so Jesus, you need to do something. And he said, you know, you need to train them like I trained the disciples. So instead, mainly the class, you have mainly the, the ministry and the education on the ministry field on the side of that kind of great leaders, really discipling them. And on the side, the class is supporting from Monday to Wednesday um, with a bachelor, but it's still something which supports the ministry in the church and the learning in the church. So this is different with THS, and THS means theology for hand and spirit. And we came to the States because in Germany it grew pretty fast. And we came to, to the States, started, we wanted to start in the States with the, with the system, but immediately last year uh, God said, no, 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 we start with the world. So right now we have really students from all over the world. A lot of, uh, a lot of them are already pastors, but they didn't have the education. So this is very exciting. It is very exciting. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, they're doing an online uh, seminary, effectively, Bible college, uh, with students all over the world. And this is, this is one of the blessings I've received, is to watch what is happening to the church worldwide under COVID. We're seeing it every single day with the students in these classes, from Kenya to, uh, gosh, Kosovo, uh, Albania. Albania, I mean, everywhere. You're, we're seeing all kinds of things happen. And, and so, uh, yeah, yeah, so I would encourage you, uh, talk with Tom and Inga about THS, but you're not here really to talk about THS today. I just wanted to give that background. Tell us about uh, a different rooted, because I referred to rooted course that we're going to be doing, but you're going to be doing a rooted conference. Tell us about that. By the way, we would love to talk to you about that because it's really interesting what, what's going on on the whole world because it seems like everything is the same. Okay, so rooted, so we are here in Spokane and our heart is really beating for uh, Spokane. We are in the best church. I'm so sorry if people are from other churches, but we are in the best <laughs> church of Spokane, so I'm sorry about that. But Okay, so... Uh, so God put us on our heart because we watched out for the young people because of THS to introduce them. And we, we found out that the young, the young people are very hidden. There's no youth conference, no youth leader meetings. So we waited for one year and nothing happened. So we, Jesus said, okay, I think you need to start. So we want to start to unify the youth and the young generation with their leaders in Spokane. Starting, we want to start them. And uh, Jesus is funny because people from South Carolina will come and Portland will come and they want to bring rooted over there as well. So everything what we do is like the Bible says, multiply, uh, you can multiply, multiplicate multiply. it. Yeah, multiply it. Thank you. Rooted is a conference. It's from 16th to the 17th of April. It's in the Covenant Church and it's for the whole young generation between 16 up to 28 and if you feel like 25 that's okay too so i'm there as well <laughs> uh, and we want to really root them back to christ back to the word this is great i love the sermon and into the great commission bringing people to jesus this is our big goal is prepare jesus great return prepare the bride you know so if you would support us so first of all you are invited when you are in this age group um and the second one maybe you can put out your uh your your iphone your phone your cell phone that would be great right now if you have a cell phone just maybe right now just grab it maybe you can do it later but then we have an uh, Instagram account. And if you would follow us, you get all the informations needed in the next weeks. Uh, we have prayer meetings before and stuff like that. And we have a website. So maybe you can write it down because uh, we didn't have enough. We, our, all our flyer were out. So it's rooted, rooted, dot, also period, US. Oh, that is. Thank you so much. So there you have. If you follow us on Instagram, this will be a great support. 
And if you would come and you can find everything, you can register yourself on the website. That would be amazing to set this, this city on fire for Jesus. I'm very excited. We will have people from all over the, the country coming. So, April 16, 17, as you can see there, we're going to stand and pray. Would you? Yes. Yeah, go ahead, Jesse. All ages, correct? Yep. Good. Okay. Thursday, 5.30, Taekwondo. Stand, would you? And we're going to pray for THS and for the Rooted Conference coming up here in our city. Our gracious Father, we cry out for a generation that is being destroyed. We cry out for this younger generation of teens and 20s, Father, that is being decimated in this world by evil. It's being decimated in this city. And so we pray that you would graciously pour out your spirit, you would graciously work with hundreds of teens and 20s here in this city in the weeks to come, the years to come. Father, we refuse to give them up to the enemy. And we agree together in the name of Jesus Christ that he died for them, purchased them with his blood, and longs to fill them with his life. And so we pray for your blessing over that conference. We pray for your blessing over THS as they continue to reach into all kinds of corners of the world and our own city. Lord, please send more laborers into your harvest field. And please use THS to do that. God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Enjoy some fellowship with others.